Hello, and welcome to Music Maps, the Rock and Roll Book Club podcast. In each episode, we use a place as a jumping off point for a conversation about music, anywhere from the obvious to the obscure. Today, I'm joined by Simon Cardwell. Hello, Mark. And our very special guest, Lucy O'Brien. Hello. Lucy has written mainly or largely recently about women in the music business. That includes biographies of Madonna, of Skin, Annie Lennox, Dusty Springfield, as well as She-Bop, the definitive history of women in the music industry. So this is our Music Maps podcast. Where are we going today, Simon? If you've been to the USA there's a good chance you've probably been to California. If you've been to California, you've probably been to LA. But what about the LA suburb of Downey? You probably haven't been there. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> think I have. It doesn't feel like somewhere too many listeners are going to have been. So this is our first trip stateside, and we're going to look at the career of Karen Carpenter, the subject of Lucy's definitive biography, Lead Sister. So to start with, what brought you to this subject? I first became aware of the Carpenters as a girl and I remember singing On Top of the World in the school choir when I was about eight years old. And when I was growing up through the 1970s, the Carpenters were just dominated the charts and it was this, not just the lush pop sound, but everything they represented in that sound to us growing up America was this kind of spangly amazing sparkling place where the skies were always incredibly blue and the cars were absolutely massive and we had imported American TV that was just it was just so different you think about Britain in the, in the 1970s it was Little bit dreary, perhaps. A bit dreary, a bit grimy. And and there was something about the Carpenters that was very glamorous. And then, as I got older, I appreciated them in a different way. And particularly after Karen's tragic death in 1983 from anorexia, and she was so young, she was only 32, and it was as if it was like a David Lynch film, something like Blue Velvet. The, this beautiful Americana and then this real dark shadow underneath. And I realised that was that was the Carpenter's story. And that's what really attracted me to write Karen's story and really look at Karen's story. We've only just begun to live White lace and pride when I was writing my book Shebop in the early 90s, I was doing a chapter on um, the pop industry and particularly its impact on women and female artists. And I looked at Karen's story in detail mm. and I was listening to the music over again. And as I was listening to it, I thought, wow, she's got, it's a real combination of suburbia and the blues and it was like she had that perfect combination of suburban blues and as Nikki Chin said to me incredible pain she just expressed this honest 
pain in her voice, in the way that she delivered the words. There was this real honesty in the way that she sang. And that I found that incredibly moving. So when I was approached by Pete Selby from Nine Eight, the publishers, just a few years ago, and he said, would you be interested in writing a book about Karen Carpenter? I just immediately said yes. It may not be possible to say this, but in the public consciousness, what would the person in the street know about Karen Carpenter? I think what dominated her story and had done for a few decades was the tragedy. And yes. that was how she was framed, this tragic victim, that the, she was this kind of innocent flower crushed by the, the wheels of the music industry and her family and the management and the record label. And I wanted to dig a bit deeper and find, because I thought having studied female artists for so long and being fully aware of what it takes to get to that level of fame, to become the top of your game in the, in the music industry, particularly in the 1970s, there was no way that she would have been a shrinking violet or no. just this kind of sweet innocent. And I sensed there was more to it. And as I spoke to people who knew her, who friends, former boyfriends, other musicians, it was like this other picture of her emerged. Quite a driven, quite tough yeah. woman and really focused in and it was so refreshing to see that other side to her let's go back to the early 70s or perhaps the late 60s back to la and back to this suburb of downey yes there was just richard and karen and their mother and father agnes and harold they moved from connecticut in the early 60s ostensibly to further richard's musical career and agnes thought Richard was absolutely amazing, that he was the musical genius in the family. And when I spoke to Nicky Chin, who was Karen's boyfriend at one time in, in, in the 70s, he said that she admitted to him that the favouritism that her mother showed towards Richard, she found really hurtful and, and quite damaging. And she actually admitted that. And Nikki Chin said that's where you, the source, he felt that that was the real source of her pain. So they moved to LA, uprooted the whole family. Karen was just 12, 13 at the time. And as we know from research, that's actually quite a a critical time to move and to to Mm -hmm. shift a young teenager as she was. And not just a few miles, this was right across America. And as I was looking through the research and looking through her story, I, I was thinking it's obvious here that she hit a crisis point with this move. Her grades plummeted. She, that was when she stopped playing sports. That's when she started to lose interest in the things that that she'd loved before. She didn't have as many friends. And it took her a little while to kind of reassemble herself and get her get herself back together. But she did first learn the drums around this time, is that right? Yeah, so this was actually her route towards independence and she was fascinated by the high school marching band <laughs> and particularly the drums. As we- she wanted to join, she didn't want just, the band leader, the t- music teacher didn't, he tried to offer her different instruments 
But she said, no, no, I, I want to be up front with the guys. I want to be, like, banging that drum as hard as possible. And and she said that people looked at her strangely, but she didn't care because once she found those drums, that for her was a real liberation. Yeah. How did So tell us how they come about. So how come uh, Richard and Karen writing music together in in a bedroom or what's the how does this begin so they started off as music fans listening to their father's enormous record collection in the basement listening to everything from jazz to rock and roll to pop music to surf music and that obviously gave them that vast musical knowledge that that they have that you can see the influences and the reflections and the sophistication in the arrangements and, and, and the, the, the Carpenter's music. Then they got into singing. They were both at Cal State University for a little while studying music and, that, and that's when they joined Frank Pooler's choir and they learned like that incredible clarity and pristine nature, the way they sang the vowels. And of course, as siblings, they had natural harmony, perfect harmony. So it was there from the beginning. They, Frank, they were, Frank yeah. Pooler. So in that choir, this is something I'm interested in. So Frank Pooler, does he, he recognise that perhaps Karen has exceptional talent and does he single her out? And for Yes. he. I think he was quite a mentor to mm-hmm. her, a really important figure, maybe a bit of a father figure to, to her um, because I spoke to other students of Frank Pooler who remember him talking about Karen and how fond he was of her and how they had that really special connection and she learned so much from him and that was something I wanted to bring out in the book that they didn't just come from nowhere that that they had that incredible training and tuition right from those early years and and brought that into their their pop sound and they were in the several vocal groups and a jazz group but it was when they whittled it down to just the two of them, that's when they arrived at their sound. Mm-hmm. How unusual was it to see someone playing the drums and also singing? Highly unusual, particularly a woman. You go on YouTube now, you look at that video for Rainy Days and Mondays, and you'll see her completely in her element, singing and playing the drums, and she's comfortable and she's happy. So you've mentioned that they're originally from Connecticut, New Haven. They moved to California, June 1963. And one of the best bits in the book is right at the end where you actually go to Downey and you retrace Karen's steps. Tell us a little bit more about that trip. So I went to LA and I went, literally went to find Karen. I did interview quite a few people, but at the same time, I really just wanted to soak up the atmosphere. I suppose you'd call this psychogeography. And I wanted to get a sense of Karen's thoughts. So I went to Century City and where she lived near the Fox TV studios when she was mega successful and she was on the 22nd floor and Barbara Streisand lives in the same building etc and I got a sense of elation 
Then I went, got an Uber, and I thought I'll go to Downey and find the house. And it's the house on the cover of the Now and Then album. Mm. And this is, so we're going south of LA to the suburbs. And it really is, it's just off the freeway. And it's very bland, lots of low-rise buildings. There's kind of malls and there's tyre shops. And my heart's sinking, and I start to feel unaccountably depressed it's oh my god and and I suppose that's when I started to rethink how she must have felt when she'd been transplanted from that sweet kind of New Haven Connecticut right to Downey Downey High School's this huge concrete monolith (laughs) with thousands of high school kids and she's just plonked in the middle of this I did get a sense of her maybe her alienation had you done this with your other subjects, I'm thinking with Dusty, do, do you go, have you done this before? Do you go down the streets they walk down to get a sense of what it might have been like for well, them? I do, I do. And it's, it's quite an uncanny process because you do actually pick up so much. Again, going back to this phrase, psychogeography, it's where you get a sense of someone's psyche. And I tell you why that's important is because I do think there's a strong connection with that and with music. Yeah. That's the way music is made. Yeah. And that's why we know that place is such an important part Absolutely. of making music. I, I definitely think that there's that sense of alienation at, at her in inside. But within a few years, she discovered the marching band at school. Yeah. She and Richard had really hit their stride in terms of singing in terms of real love of jazz and combining all all their influences and then hitting on this winning formula and that just led them to real success so they were playing in a vocal group called Spectrum and they played quite frequently around LA a mixture of folk clubs and rock clubs and their manager at the time a guy called Ed Saltzer sent their demo tape around various record companies who sniffed around them but to be honest they didn't really know what to do with them they got signed up for a commercial and then and that it was for a Ford car and they were going to make a lot of money and just at that point a demo tape wound its way to Herb Albert of A&M yeah and it's quite a legendary story he listened to it he heard Karen's voice and then immediately he could see the whole thing. And he. Do we know thought, what tracks were on that demo? I think it was a few tracks that they'd recorded with the bass player, Joe Osborne. And I think it was a combination of songs, just early material that they'd been working on. Mm-hmm. But the main thing was the quality of her voice. It did happen all quite quickly because they formed in 1969. And by the spring of 1970, they're recording Close to You. So it's quite a whirlwind. Yes, so they have a hit with Close to You and then that's quickly followed by We've Only Just Begun and then really it's just one hit after another. Certainly for those first few albums, they didn't put a foot wrong and I think it was because everything came together at that point. You had those lush vocal harmonies, the, the incredible arrangements of production, but then you also had A&M Records, who at that point were on a real high, and there was a whole buzz around the studios there. There's old Charlie Chaplin Studios. It feels like quite family-like, a bit of a community there. 
Who else was on the label around the same time? So we had Carol King, who who came out with Tapestry, which was mm. such an amazing album, such a groundbreaking album. And it was an interesting label because it had everything from her to Procol Harum, Humble Pie, even some island records, bands like Fairport Convention. So it was very much an artist label. Yeah. So they Carpenters say one of the big acts of the seventies. What was the peak period? I'd say the early 70s. So I'm thinking close to you in 1970, and we've only just begun. They really pioneered that easy listening sound. Yeah. You know, what I think easy listening's almost a bit of a misnomer now because it suggests something bland, and their music wasn't bland, oh. it just took pop into a different direction. The subject matter could be a little risque at times as well. Superstar, another huge hit of theirs, um, a, a song about a groupie, a female groupie. Also, that sense of intense nostalgia. So we get to kind of 1973 and we've got Yesterday Once More. Mm-hmm. We've also got This Masquerade. And then a nod to the 60s girl group sound, Please Mr Postman, which was a huge hit, particularly in Europe and in the UK. And then my personal favourite is Only Yesterday, 1975, that Horizon album, which I think for me was when they hit a real creative peak. And when did they do interplanetary craft? So, Calling occupants yeah, of interplanets, so, which is a bit left field, isn't it? It is a bit left field. Just a little it was, bit. It was originally a song by a prog rock band called Klaatu, and it was released in 1977. So it was a kind of, it was at the time that Star Wars came out. And in fact, Richard and Karen stopped the recording process at one point to go down the road and see Star Wars. Yes, and this I think bit that, was my yeah, favourite bit. And that really animated that resonated the whole recording hugely. session. Yeah. And that's one of my personal favourites, actually, is that one, because it, it is a bit spacey and it is experimental and quite epic in tone. And you get the sense of car- the carpenters moving into a different musical direction by then. During these times, the the successful times, is Karen battling this anorexia? Yeah, so it, it first really emerged in about 1974 when they'd really hit their peak in terms of um, 
exposure and hits and touring and they were relentlessly touring not just around America but also Europe and Japan and she saw herself on TV she saw herself in magazines and she suddenly felt very self-conscious and that she she felt she she kept using this word heavy that she looked too heavy and that she needed to exercise and she went on a diet quite rigorous diet she'd been on a diet on and off to be honest since the age of 17 when her mum actually took her to the doctor to put her on a diet and the doctor this happened back in those days the doctor prescribed her inverted commas what was called the Stillman diet which was just basically lots of water and cutting out loads of calories and that was the beginning of her calorie counting and her becoming a little obsessive but she managed to maintain her weight at a sort of relatively healthy level for for quite a while but it was around 74 75 that it started to plummet and that was that was when they were peak touring and then it got to a point in 1975 where she just collapsed she was completely exhausted and she was severely underweight you feel like at that time a lot of her friends and family and things were either not aware at all of this kind of thing or were hesitant to bring it up? Or I think one of the most poignant interviews I did was with their tour manager at the time, a woman called Rebecca Siegel, who there were a few people I interviewed who'd never been really interviewed before or spoken before and they felt ready to tell their story and Rebecca she said I was one of the few female tour managers at that point but I did notice that Karen was not eating properly and that she was just pushing food around her plate and I wanted to say something to somebody but at the same time I didn't feel like I had the power within the touring management company and she noticed that people seemed to be feeling awkward about it or turning a blind eye and she just felt that because Karen didn't want to deal with it herself people didn't tackle it, they didn't intervene or certainly there wasn't the same awareness there wasn't the same knowledge about how to deal with eating disorders now we know so much more i, th- I think you do say in the book people perhaps didn't behave that, in a way that in retrospect anyone would have liked them to because they're clearly making some money for people and that the money's coming through let's keep doing that is was there elements of that as well I think as like Tom Barler said to me, it was like the Carpenters was like this enormous juggernaut yeah. and it was very difficult for Karen to get off that. <laughs> the Carpenters had become so huge then and it, it employed so many people. And I'm not saying that to blame any particular person because in the end there are so many vested interests, aren't there? And if there's not much awareness, I, I think... The problem was, at the time, people thought that the person suffering from anorexia, all they had to do was use a bit of willpower and eat something. It was without the awareness now that it's, it is a chronic disease. And when it takes hold, it's almost impossible for someone suffering it to, to get better without huge help, inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment. The book that... I think it's very important, came out in the last 18 months. It's Bodies by Ian Winwood, which was published by Faber. And there was also the touring manual. 
And I th- in my mind, it's the first time books have looked at mental health in the music industry. Yeah. And it has to be acknowledged that the music industry has been a pretty poor industry. I think the creative industries um, have exploited young people yes. throughout the, the whole history of rock and roll and done some terrible things that any reasonable employer would not do. We are, have become aware. And I think books like this are going to play an important role going forward. Yeah. And, and the music industry has to change how it deals with young people in their care because they are vulnerable. And we, Exactly. So, Karen, what was the reaction to her death? It was enormous. It was talking to people now, the friends around her, the musicians around her. When I asked each of them, what did you feel that when you first heard she died? Like Stephanie Sprawl, who was a fantastic singer who sang on their last album, Made in America, and she got on, really got on with Karen. She said that when she got the news, she was on tour at that point in Italy and she was walking into her hotel room. She said she just fell to the ground and she was crying because the last time she'd seen her, she'd seen Karen backstage looking just so thin and could barely keep her head up. And I think it really hit her hard. I think there is a sense of almost collective failure. The same feeling you talk to people around... Amy Winehouse Mm -hmm. and the enormous gap that opened up after her death, it almost felt the same with Karen, Mm -hmm. that there was, we failed her, we failed her, what could we have done? And I think her death initiated the beginnings of a really important conversation about mental health and eating disorders. And if there's one thing you could think positively about it, Cherry Boone O'Neill, who who was a good friend of hers and who spoke to me for the book, said that she felt that it did contribute a lot to understanding and working with awareness about it as a disease. Karen had been working on a solo album Um, Yeah, so that comes along after she died. Yeah, so the solo album is such an interesting chapter. It was literally an interesting chapter to do because Richard had his problems as well, which which I go into in the book, in that he was um, addicted to um, quaaludes. He had terrible insomnia and... um, and then after a while, he just overdid um, the, the sleeping pills um, and ended up in rehab. And at that, this was in the late 70s. And at that point, Karen, ever wanting to move forward, despite her illness, she was very proactive and very restless. She wanted to record a solo album. She wanted to explore her power as a solo artist. And she really quite courageously, she went off with Phil Ramone, went and recorded in New York. It was all Billy Joel's backing band, plus great arrangers like Bob James. And I was lucky enough to talk to pretty much all the musicians who'd worked on that album. And they said that she enjoyed it so much and she had a real laugh with them. I love the fact that she's got quite a Derek and Clive type humour, which <laughs> she appreciated all those jokes. And she just loved it. And there is a sense of her breaking free and wanting to break free. And the music that she was creating, which was really quite different from The Carpenters.
there was some material she was offered which they didn't record. Oh, I know. She was working with Rod Temperton and he offered her Off the Wall and Rock With You. And she said no. And then Michael Jackson ended up recording those two songs and making them absolutely massive. But oh, A&M were very sniffy about the, the solo album. And if they'd had those two songs, I bet they would have released it. And it could have been so different. Yeah, so why did Richard largely vanish from public view after Karen died? I've always wondered this. I think part of it's trauma, to be honest, that he had such a close working relationship with his sister that I think it just made him just probably feel incredibly sad when he worked with anybody else. And I think it knocked the stuffing out of him, actually. So that as a, as a result of that, he did work with Dusty Springfield. He did work with Dionne Warwick for a little bit. But it just wasn't the same and the results weren't as didn't really go anywhere. He did a solo album. I just feel like his heart was always in the Carpenters. And to be honest, I don't think he's ever really got over it. So what he's done instead is just lovingly curate the back catalogue and reassemble it in a number of different ways over the years. He helped release her solo album. It finally got a proper release in the 90s. He was well in favour of the compilation album If I Were a Carpenter, where <laughs> lots of bands like Sonic Youth and Betty Savert and Shonen Knife just reimagined Carpenter's songs. He was well up for that. I think he, he could see that there was a whole new market by then. Um, yeah, so that was music. in the 90s when we have the tribute album and Sonic Youth record a couple of her songs. What do you know about how that came about? First off, I think it was Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth who was very struck by Karen's story. And she and the band wrote the song Tunic, which is a tribute to Karen and singing about her life and kind of singing, imagining her up there in, in heaven. And then that sparked off a whole compilation album where it's interesting, in the 70s, the hip, cool generation didn't like the Carpenters. Mm. There was a lot of criticism of them at the time. And even within A&M itself, some of the people working there thought that they were much too bland and too straight and didn't understand why they were on the label but then by the time we get to the 90s and, and we get to gen x's they experienced the carpenter's music in a different way because by then of course karen had died and also i think big influence is todd haynes film superstar mm -hmm. where he'd basically taken a whole bunch of barbie dolls or dolls a bit like barbies and animated them yeah that was um, 1987 i think that came out yeah so that was responsible for really showing us the carpenters in a completely different light and I was lucky enough to see the film when it first came out before it got banned <laughs> and it was incredibly powerful. You can see it now, a bootleg version on YouTube, but the original is, it was one of Todd Haynes' really early films, but it was incredibly well done. I'll say goodbye to love No one ever cared if I should live or die Time and time again the chance for love has passed me by and all Now Simon's been digging into Downey and into other 
musical facts, or non-musical, not necessarily musical, but other downy facts. Simon, hit us with some downy factoids. There wasn't that much to find about this place compared to others, but I found a couple of things. So, true or false? So, Mark, you're going to go first. True or false? The same year that the Carpenter family relocated to Downey, 1963, Metallica frontman James Hetfield was born in the town. I don't see any reason why that cannot be true. It is, in fact, true. Amazing. Did you know about that? I didn't know that. There (laughs) you go. Fantastic. There's a yin and a yang, isn't there? There is a yin and a yang to that. Um, The other one that I found was, true or false, Lucy, Downey is home to the world's oldest McDonald's. I think that's true. It is true. Yeah. It's the third McDonald's that opened. That's Where was the right. first one? Is it Midwest? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, There's it, a film about it, which yeah, is actually pretty good. It, it is so quintessentially American. And that's where, now and then, that's why they've got their house on the cover of that album. And also, and I write about it in the book, how much Karen and Richard loved their automobiles and driving their cars really fast. And yeah, there's, there's with, a whole sort of hot rod fits culture. with the whole thing, I yeah, thought, yeah. yeah. The only other thing I found... <laughs> which was, again, really obscure, was that the local library uh, in the the early 60s banned the Tarzan series because in one of the books, Tarzan had a child while out of wedlock. Wow. Which I thought was (laughs) extraordinarily obscure, which is the sort of thing that I like. A few people told me it was famously Republican in a sea of Democrat. Yeah. This was a national news story at the time. Just got one question left that we should have covered earlier. Tell us about your visit to the A&M studio. That was lovely. There I was in Downey feeling like down, <laughs> really down. And and then I got in a in an Uber and went back into town. And now it's called Henson Recording Studios. But it's still, they've kept the A&M studios pretty much as they were. So like you walk in and it is like you're walking back in time. And some of those studios, not much has changed since the 1970s. But one in particular, Studio B, is where the Carpenters recorded a lot of the classic songs it was at night and it was during Passover actually so it felt like a really magical night Farangel who kind of heads up the studios put little candles everywhere in the studio and it was really warm and quiet and then the engineer just put on Song for You by the Carpenters (laughs) and again I had this bit of a magic moment where I felt I could really hear Karen singing and it is an amazing thing hearing a record that's been mm. recorded in the actual environment that you're yeah. hearing it's like an echo of an echo it's really uncanny it's quite ghostly actually and the engineers afterwards said to me that they feel like she's still there sometimes and then sometimes when they're locking up at night they go upstairs to like the little kitchenette upstairs and they say, good night, Karen. <laughs> I've been so many places in my life and time. I've sung a lot of songs. I've made some bad rhyme. So, Lucy, you've been extraordinarily productive. You mentioned that the softback, paperback version of Lead Sister is out. Yes, that's right. Um, And Dusty is out in paperback as well, my biography of Dusty Springfield. Amazing. And the other day, through my letterbox, a book 
dropped on the carpet. It was from Faber, and it's called The Liver Birds, Our Story of Life in Britain's First Female Rock and Roll Band. The names at the top, Mary McGlory and Sylvia Saunders, is, is what's on the front. But I understand they have been aided and abetted by your good self. Indeed, yes, I wrote it with Mary and Sylvia. And yeah, that was what I did immediately I finished Karen, lead sister, I immediately went and launched into working on the Liverbirds. And it was basically, I sat and interviewed them at length about their lives. They were the, they're the two surviving members because the lead singer, Pam Birch and Val, Valerie Girl, the guitarist, they've both passed away. But it's an absolutely fascinating story. And I went up to Liverpool and I spent time in Hamburg with them because, of course, they were there with the Beatles. They were one of the first kind of female Merseybeat groups. And then they went to the Star Club and became famous in Germany and Europe and Japan. The book is subtitled Our Story of Life in Britain's First Female Rock and Roll Band which is quite an astonishing thing to be, isn't it? I know, I found it astonishing and everyone I've spoken to since I've been working on it says, why have we not heard of them before? And I I felt so ashamed because I'd been writing my book Shebop and I'd updated it several times and I hadn't heard about them but then I thought but that's just sexism isn't it because that's the way it happens that they weren't considered important enough to be properly documented to have their story properly documented it has the most wonderful opening prologue this book it's 6th of June 1964 they're appearing with Chuck Berry in Germany at a gig and they're told Don't play any Chuck Berry songs. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you any more, but it's a great arresting opening to this fabulous book. This is out in in March, 14th of March. As you've done throughout your writing, it's redressing the balance. It's giving a voice to people or reminding us of of people because it's so easy to be written out, as we can see from the live of birds. And what is tragic, and I'm not going to name names, but last year I was sent a list of forthcoming titles by a publisher and as I ran, ran through the list, I was forced to email them and said, you do know women write books as well, and there are some female bands. But the, in, in their list of, I don't know, 25 books, um, there was some terrible omissions. Uh, it's something that they apologise, shall we say. There's definitely more than there used to be. Obviously, Pete Selby at Nine Eights published a lot of those in the last couple of years. I think we need to doff our hats at, at some Good people in the, mm. in the publishing industry. Hats off yes. to Pete for doing yes. that. Pete's yes. LB 9-8 books, a, f- a great kind of uh, imprint, a great catalogue. Also, I, I like at every opportunity to talk about Lee Braxton oh, uh, yeah. at White Rabbit and pre- previously a Faber. And as I point out to people, uh, the, these are you know not people necessarily in the public domain. But if I look on my bookshelves for the last 20 years, Lee Braxton's thumbprints are on a lot of the books on my shelf. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it's a golden time at the moment in terms of music book publishing. And those two, it's great. They've got this really brilliant, healthy competition between them and they're get, they're getting a lot of the best books at the moment. Lucy, I agree with you. It is a golden time for, for music books. What do you think accounts for, for this halcyon or golden time in this? What are we 
yearning. So I've looked at this and thought about this quite a lot. And because music books weren't always selling, it's had a sort of up and down profile for quite a while. But I think really it was with the decline of print journalism and that huge readership that grew up on all the weeklies that needed somewhere to go and it's not enough online some of our younger listeners may not be aware that of course you began and was a key figure in those weekly music papers just tell me i i do think it's a hankering for more long-form journalism and you do not get that in the modern nme yes Um, typically or if you were commissioned to write a piece what would have been the longest piece in words that you'd done for the enemy Quite regularly, 2,000 words. Which is you know? astonishing. So, I mean, yeah, it wasn't little bite-sized chunks. No. And it was frequently we would go off and we would do big trips and we'd often go off to the States or we'd be, I remember going to Poland one time and mm. writing a story. And you were given space. Yeah. And that was, people liked it. They liked to have all the background. They liked to have the atmosphere and the... and. The full story. We had Alan Jones only the other week who was talking about the second book of his collected works, if you like. Mm. And again, what is striking and what we know you don't get any any longer is what you've just said. The space in the paper, Mm. first of all, to do these pieces. The time and space and the funding to go away with some of these artists and really... Just by being in the present. This is it. You put your finger on it. It's the investigative side of it. And I think you do get that writing in Mojo. I was talking to John Mulvey the other day, who's the editor of Mojo, and he was saying so much of what we do is we're so lucky with the writers in that you all go out and you interview, you spend so much time tracking people down to get the full story, to get the whole inside story. And I think that's what's good about these books is is that you're getting that you're getting that depth that maybe you might get snatches of this online but it it's all quite scattershot it's yeah. quite fragmented so there's something just very aesthetically pleasing about having a proper book where it's all there and you've got the whole story from start to finish so music books may have been niche and now there's a growing market for it britney spears book Perhaps unsurprisingly, it's done about 180,000 copies. Barbara Streisand's book, Mammoth, 900 pages. It's a 48-hour audiobook, I noticed that. My goodness, that's really <laughs> but then, impressive. But then there's a... Barbara. To be fair to Barbara Streisand, she's lived a career, a life she, and a career, she hasn't has. she? She has, she's lived 900 pages. But yeah. we go back, the, the Viv Albertine book, mm. which I think took everyone by surprise because mm. it's fair to say the slits of... Fairly niche, fairly left field, but she sold mm. hundreds, not hundreds of thousands, but many thousands of copies yes. of, of that book. Yes. It was Viv Albertine's book. It was uh, Patti Smith's Kids. Mm. It was uh, the uh, Reckless by Chrissy Hine. Yes. It was very yes. apparent that there was a, a swathe of really great writing by, by women yeah. who weren't, yeah. nec- uh, weren't necessarily, first and foremost, Patti Smith aside, mm. uh, Viv Albertine is known as a musician, not a, not a writer, but wonderful writing. That was the beginning of what I'm calling this golden age because yeah. it feels really fresh, doesn't it? it does. That they're, These stories, we hadn't heard them a million times before, whereas, bless them, I love the Beatles and Sex Pistols, etc., but we have heard those stories. And it just felt 
new. It felt the women's stories had been buried or obscured or they were footnoted for so long Mm. that now we want to know about them. And it's not just the women's stories, but you're getting stories from all different scenes and different... It's not just all about London punk. It's all about what happened in the regions as well and the stories from there. And you can get a whole book on factory records and and people want to know about those scenes and a real flash I'm glad you've mentioned the Factory Records book and I know you're mentioning the Audrey Golden book yeah. the fact, Factory Women of Factory we're on Mark's specialist subject <laughs> you'll, yes. you'll, you'll be on for two hours here <laughs> but it is quite remarkable that for a very small very insular scene with bands that uh, produced very little uh, to, mm. to Joy Division Records mm. but there there are shelves full of books about factory records and and those bands but what there hasn't been and it's taken them 40 years is the the woman's voice yeah, and yes. what and audrey's done a very creditable that, that sounds too mean stingy a word but she's done a remarkable job in bringing yeah. all of those women or yeah. as many as she could get to the fore and allowing their voice to be heard and that, mm. again credit to her and to you and everybody who is is has the opportunity and is bringing us into our bringing these things into our lives so thank you very much uh, lucy o'brien thank yeah. you time to each recommend something to finish off this can be something you've loved for many years or a recent discovery um i'll, I'll go to you first mark I wish you hadn't, because I hadn't actually thought of one. But I'm, I'm going to be totally off topic. Um, something that's excited me. At the bottom of my road, there is a bus stop. And on Saturday week... So um, this is in Walthamstow, for context. In Walthamstow. Bottom of my road, there is a bus stop. On that bus stop, on a Saturday, I noticed an illuminated roundel, which is a, a circle, basically, illuminated said Superloop. And it's a new bus service uh, that goes from the bottom of my road all the way to North Finchley. And then we'll eventually join with another bus service that will go to Harrow and another bus service that will go to Heathrow and eventually Circle London. So it's it actually goes around network. the North Circular. Yes. So, is it, so this bus actually goes on the motorway. This bus does some of the others. The SL2 is about to launch. SL2, TFL, should be thinking of partnering with the famous band SL2 to to get a song to, to go with the launch. We'll go slightly off I don't piece. think I've ever been on a bus on a motorway in London. I see the stops on the North Circular. It's an express bus route. It means it doesn't stop at every stop and it gets you to the end, therefore, much quicker. That's my current enthusiasm, Simon. That isn't the music book. Exciting. I'm excited for you. I can see how pleased you are about I've got it. a badge. <laughs> right, I'm going to go next. And seeing as it was mentioned in the book, obviously I'm a lifelong Star Wars fan, as anyone who has met me knows. I was delighted to see it mentioned in the book. I love the idea of them ducking out the studio to go and see it. The, the mania that it created in 1977 and people are queuing up around the block. And it was shown at the Prince Charles Cinema a couple of weeks ago and I was lucky to see the original Star Wars. I'm going to recommend that. And then we'll go to Lucy. Two things, actually. I went to see the Women in Revolt exhibition Ah, at Tate Britain, which has my friend Gina Birch. This is just so brilliant. I love this. There she is, lead singer, guitarist (laughs) of the Raincoats. And then she does her first solo album in her 60s. And it's like a huge album. And the other thing, and then she's, she's there on Tate Britain. And it, basically, she made this video as an art student of her screaming. And it's become very iconic. 
And she said to me, because I went last Monday, and then she said, I've got an exhibition in Whitechapel. There's a small Gallery 46, which is curated the exhibition was curated by sean mccluskey and i went along former joe boxer yes sean mccluskey and man about town yes and gina's got a solo exhibition there it's just passed now unfortunately but in one room and i love it because it's like a little sacred chapel she's got the screaming saints so she was brought up a catholic girl and she remembered all those pictures of joan of arc and saint bernadette and saint lucy and they're all looking very kind of beautific and everything she said but they were um, at the time, it was pretty rough for them because a lot of them were dismembered or tortured. Yeah. So she's basically done these like little, they look like little icon pictures, but with their eyes gouged out and their mouths open screaming. <laughs> but it is like dark comedy and yeah. it's just amazing. And you just think the ideas that she has are so startling. Exciting. Yes. Excitedly. Yeah. Um, say a big thank you to Lucy O'Brien for coming along to this podcast. There'll be more of this coming along. Please subscribe if there is that option. And don't forget, we have a website, rockandrollbookclub.co.uk, Instagram, just put Rock and Roll Book Club and you'll find books and information, archives and silliness and all manner of things. So thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.